As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. And welcome to a special episode of Straight Out of Cobham with me, Matt Davis Adams, and Pat Nevin as we discuss Pat's autobiography, The Accidental Footballer, which is available now. Uh, Pat, many thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll get to the the book momentarily, but but first, tell us tell us a bit about the process of, of writing this and getting it out during a pandemic because uh, that was quite a challenge. It was, um, but the way I I did it was very unusual. I think for certainly for people that play football. Somebody just annoyed me one day and I sat down in front of a, and if you've read the prologue, you'll understand. Um, and I just sat down and started writing and it flowed out. I hadn't really looked back, but I didn't go to a publisher. I didn't speak to anyone. I didn't tell anyone I was doing this. I just started writing because I've always kind of fancied getting roused to it. So the pro, that was the process of how it was written. And then I thought after about 120,000 words, I hey, wait a minute, I better show this to someone in case it's rubbish. Or <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, Monterey looked at it, uh, great publishers, um, particularly Jake, who's there, and he said, I like this. Uh, and that's a love, and, and I think books are supposed to be harder to put together than that. <laughs> so that save was easy. But then it was, uh, I can read it to make sure it, it read as well as I wanted it to read, uh, which took a little bit longer. Um, maybe, so it only took three weeks to write initially, which is incredibly quick. But then after that, I really took some time in it and made sure it was right and juggled it about a bit. Um, but that was still well over a year ago. This book was finished and it, I'd edited everything and got it in place long before the pandemic started. And, and this is a different planet we were on then. Um, so that was that done. Um, but then publisher said, you know, getting it out now is, is tough because it's in the pandemic. There's problems with warehousing and all that sort of stuff, all the technical stuff. And then uh, they delayed it. And it could have been out last Christmas. It was ready. Um, and then it was another delay about eight weeks ago. They just said, no, we're, we're not, not putting it out yet. We're going to wait till the pandemic's finished and people go into bookshops this is a bookshop book which i took as a compliment <laughs> so that's what they've done so it's, it's it's out now it's been out for about 10 days and uh it's been a bit of a relief and by the way and of course this is the stupid part of course i've now finished part two 
<laughs> now the part one's out. <laughs> uh, but it's it, that that was a process. Seemed a long time. But in the meantime, I was still doing all my work and traveling and collecting more stories. Music, obviously a big influence on your life and a big theme throughout the book. It's quite a punk way to do it, isn't it? Kind of DIY. You, know, you, you write it yourself, you get stuff done, and then you get other people on board with it. Oh, you're good, Matt. Oh, you are good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and you couldn't actually put it more precisely than that. And actually, nobody else has kind of said that to me. But you're absolutely 100% right. And remember back in the days, there was the kind of fanzine culture. That was music, then football as well. Um, but the punk ethic of do the thing, make the work. And then if people like it, you put it out. And then if, if it's put out and people then like it, then you get to go and do another one. There's no big corporate thing behind it. There's no nothing more complex. There's no advertising campaign massively. It's just I talk to people I like, and if they pass it on and they like the book, then that's good. And that is a very, very punk stroke post-punk ethic and that does fit in music because musically I, you know, I've had lots of loves of music in my life I've got Catholic tastes in many ways but I'm kind of more known for you know the kind of post-punk and all the kind of left field John Peel stuff etc which is a, a deep love for me anyway yeah and we'll get to that but I've got to say I was amused all the chapters are named after titles for songs the fact that you picked an ABBA song for one of them just greatly amused me there's something about you listening to, to ABBA that, that seems quite abstract and, and really tickled me <laughs> there's a couple of ones thrown in there for specific reasons there's one thrown in there for my daughter uh, so I could I could say that to her but I mean I'm, I'm not a music snob I mean I, I, I will openly say it ABBA are wonderful pop singers you know, and Writers of pop tunes. Um, Amy Winehouse is in there, which would probably raise a few eyebrows. But yeah, absolutely. What a gorgeous, fabulous, amazing voice and talent, you know. So, but yes, I will. I managed, they, they probably, those two probably replaced Crispy Ambulance and something else. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was, I, I didn't want it just to be completely and utterly out there. And also, a lot of, a lot of the tracks are reminiscent of the time. And that kind of helps. I kind of wanted it to be subconsciously while you're reading that chapter almost have it as an earbug and, and you think and it comes back into your head a wee bit as you're reading it and it, of people of a certain age they'll think oh yeah I remember that and it, it helps bring the time back uh, that, that was my thinking anyway yeah and there's a list of the song titles and the artists at the back of the book which means that you can make a playlist out of it um, if, if you so minded um, it's not it's not braggadocious at all the book but I was really struck by the revelation that you could do 10,000 keepy-ups by the age of 8 I mean A can you still do that and B were you doing that from age 2 to, to get to 10,000 uh, at the age of 8 do you know the other thing a, lot, a number of people have asked me about that and it just surprises me because if you can do 100 you can do 200. And if you can do 200, you can do five. Then you can do a thousand. If you do a thousand, it's not actually skill anymore. It's just concentration. It's nothing more than that. You don't have, you're not diving at it to try and save it. You're standing there bored, senseless, hour after hour after hour. So I did it for you. I did it because I wanted to know how to do it. And as soon as I'd done that 10,000, the funny thing about it, keeping that for 10,000 was, my dad watched, then he went away for his lunch and then he came back. <laughs> so I was getting away and we'd done it up the park. And when I got to 10,000, I just kicked the ball up in the air and walked away. Didn't look where it didn't look where it landed and said, right, I'm never ever going to do that again. What I'm going to do is learn a lot more tricks. And I learned to be up tricks. And you would call it freestyling now, wouldn't you? But I, I did lots of, sort of freestyling stuff when I was younger with the football. 
Um, there's another story in the book where that comes in very, very handy. You know, it's jumping forward, which in a piazza in Rome <laughs> when I was skint and I needed some food. And of course, those skills can come in handy. Yeah, when you when you wowed a crowd and got some money to feed you and your mates. Um, th- those kind of skills, obviously, that was a lot of practicing on your own. But but your dad was massive in, in terms of developing you you as a footballer from, from when you were young. But but what comes across is he invested so much time in you, but he doesn't come across as a pushy parent at all. And and that that's an incredibly difficult balance to strike. I think it is a lot. It's very difficult. I learned so much off of my dad. And, I mean, there's some great stories about him. I mean. <laughs> The Neds, as we would call them in Scotland, try to kick us off a football park. Bad, bad idea, guys. Um, but also, he he did it because he loved fitness. He loved being good at things. And the most important thing is people do it now, and it's to become a footballer, become famous, or get wealthy, right? And that's absolutely fine. None of those things had crossed my mind. Or I would imagine my dad's that much. He quite liked his to be good in football and certainly wanted me to play for I was going to say my country, or I would say our country. The discussion whether it was Ireland or Scotland had to be made <laughs> eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was time. He just gave us time. And anyone out there who's now a parent, who, and we've all been children, the vast majority of us were fortunate enough to grow up with parents. In retrospect, what, do you, what would you have wanted most for them? Was it that fabulous new computer? Was it, you know a lot about time out with your mates etc or was it spend time with me and I know what it is we all know what it is it's so easy we've lost that whereas my dad didn't <laughs> it's time and consideration and it was never to push you on and if I ever didn't want to go out training which I did every day with them until I started actually playing and then I played almost every day um, then I didn't need to do it there was no stress pressure do I go out train yeah alright um I just kept on doing it for quite a long time. Whereas my older brothers, they maybe they faded away from it. Although both of them were very good footballers anyway. But it's time. It's love. And I can't remember even if I used the words in the book. But I don't think I ever told my dad I loved him. We never did that sort of thing. I don't feel bad about it. Because we showed it to each other. Everything we ever did. And my family are all like that. And it's a, I've been very fortunate. And I know the fortune of can I, can I go to a slight sidestep here? Um, of course. You're talking about the books. I read a lot of books just now, and a lot of them are quite harrowing. And of course, a lot of the journey people have been on and the pain of a lot of things. Now, none of us get an easy life, and I'm not complaining about that, but what was I kind of noticed at the end of it is the book only gets to um, 26, 27. It seems pretty happy, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's a really joyous kind of book. And yes, I, I've had difficult things in my life that have happened and and certainly afterwards. But I remember putting it out and somebody said to me, so, so what's the what's the really bad thing that it's kind of hooked around? And I went, nothing. <laughs> it's just actually really joyous and really fun. And I and that's, I, I don't feel any guilt about that. I just felt that. And it's maybe my personality as well. Or certainly I grew into that person. So you, your early years, football-wise, obviously dominated by Celtic. You, you trained with them, but but they didn't pick you up, but you went on to kind of star around the, the Glasgow school scene. What, what, what I want to fast forward to, though, is your, your trial at Ipswich Town and, and the, the conversation at the end of that week with Bobby Robson, because I love this idea, you know, two of my favourite figures in football. And, and you know, you, you kind of imagine it, a manager at that time speaking to you in the way that Bobby did about what he did and getting the answer that he got from you. Most managers would have just, 
balked and thought, well, where's this guy coming from? But Bobby just enjoyed it, it seems. I, did, I mean, I, it was really interesting. It was a kind of magical time. I mean, I was studying in Glasgow. Um, I hadn't any great interest in becoming a footballer. Celtic had to get rid of me. Um, but I had a number of people trying to, or saying, no, no, you've, you've got to go through these trials. And I'm saying, well, why go for a trial? I don't want to succeed. <laughs> but the idea of going somewhere and having a few days away and having a bit of fun, well, yeah, I'm okay with that. So I went down to Ipswich and two or three other boys in Glasgow came. But I was small, you know, and I was like kind of really skinny, you, you know, and I, they put me with under 13s or something, 14s or whatever. Anyway, by the end of the week, I'm playing with a first team. I'm training with a first team because I've done too well at each level. And I've just zoomed me through the levels. And then playing against Terry Butcher, who he did he didn't know he was playing against his kind of cousin, inverted commas, which is again, people who don't know me are kind of going, What? You you Terry? But Terry and I know this. And then afterwards it was, you know, it, it took us in his office. And you know when you've done well. You're perfectly aware when you've done well. And the kind of first teamers were all kind of looking at each other and winking at each other, going, he's taking the mick out of some of us. And you shouldn't be doing that. Remember, Ipswich were a top, top team. By the way, youngsters listening now, Ipswich Town, do not ignore, this was a top European class club. It could get to European finals eventually, win leagues. I mean, I mean players like Murin and Tyson, and I think, don't know if they've quite been there, but Eric Gates, what a player he was. He was extraordinary. Um, and John Walk was there. I mean, I, I remember that team, you know, and, and everybody would. Not just Ipswich fans, everybody would. Of course, Bobby Robson's the manager. And then in, at his office at the end of it, and he, he could see he was suffering, you know, having to say, I don't think I can take you on because I've got this lad, Eric Gates. And I'm thinking, well, that's all right. I wouldn't have come anyway. And <laughs> just like, what? <laughs> and then he just, what, why? And I just explained my attitude towards life and happiness and what I was doing with my life. And he he just sat and just leaned back in his chair and smiled and went, yeah. And was, of course, there's a great corollary of it. Three years later, he provides me of, uh, I think it was player of the month for me in the, the top level in England. And he's no idea it's that same week guy. <laughs> <laughs> but he was lovely. And then he then picked me for, for England, for the English League against the rest of the world at Wembley. And he still didn't know it was that wee guy. <laughs> he didn't want to be a footballer. So I love the crossovers. And to be honest, there's only some of them given here because it goes on longer. You come across these people again. It's like characters. And you, you, you some of them, you, I, I hope, Matt, you, you and I know each other very well. And you'll know some of the stories. But I hope not all of them because people jump in and out and come from nowhere. And they, I love that, that people go, well, you knew him. You can't. How did that work? And it's a lovely thing about the, the way I lived my life at the time, and still do. I basically talk to everyone I ever meet. I love spending time. I take chances going places. I try to learn, and I listen. And I've, you end up meeting the most amazing, strange, interesting people in the most amazing, strange, interesting places. And uh, then you write about them <laughs> eventually. <laughs> And one of those uh, crossover characters who, who'd appear throughout your life is Craig Brown, and, and it was him who who basically persuaded you to sign for for Clyde on the promise that you could continue your studies and earn thirty quid a week while you were doing it. Yeah, and what's not to love about that? You know, because I didn't want to be a professional, but if you're paying me thirty quid, and again, it 
feels like nothing now. But I mean, I was a student, you know, you, that would get you. I mean, albums were four ninety nine at a time. That's how I gauged it. So I got to play football. So it was the third tier of Scottish football. And you're thinking, well, I'll go and have fun. But it's, I thought at the time it was a kind of accentuated boys club thing. <laughs> but it was professional, but there was no consideration of becoming a pro. Um, and for the first two or three months, um, I went there and two or three of my teammates came as well. I mean, that's a great story. We won't tell it just now in a bit of other clubs were interested in me when, when I was at the boys club, Gartcosh Rangers in particular, which is a ridiculous story. <laughs> um, but then I, I cannot, it was, there was a wee moment where I nearly then walked away again because right at the start, I went training with the Clyde team. And then after the two weeks, I'm thinking, well, I'm, I'm not arrogant, but I should be playing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, for training here, I should be playing, shouldn't I? Um, and it kept me on the bench. I mean, in retrospect, it was nice when he put me right on the bench right away for the first team, you know, within a week or two. It drove me nuts. And my memory of it was that went on for month after month after month. And then I looked back into the records and it was only a few weeks. <laughs> and then when he let me loose, I just went wild. So I was having the perfect life then. I was playing football because I loved it. And this is the underlining thing to anyone. I probably love playing football as much, if not more, than anyone else. The pure joy of it. But then I don't want to be a footballer. And even in some of the people I've talked to when talking about the book, they kind of glaze over and go, what? <laughs> but to me, it makes perfect sense. Play football for the joy and the love of the creativity. And if you ever see me playing, you kind of get that was what it was all about. There's no reason to do the other stuff, the fame stuff, unnecessary, the... Wealth, that would be nice, but who cares? As long as you've got enough to get by, I'm a bit of a lefty and that's a thing. And uh, it's, it's kind of, I, for me, it's perfectly normal. I understand it isn't the same for absolutely everyone else. So, yeah, 30 quid a week. Yeah, I can go to a film. I can get my girlfriend. I can do all the things I want to do, and I can continue the studies. But um, I kind of blew it by doing slightly too well and got player of the year for the league that season aged 17, 18, um, and then Chelsea come in. And the next line's supposed to be, and everything else is history, except is isn't. I said, no, I'm not going to Chelsea. <laughs> it kind of shocked everyone around as well. So my little sister said to me, well, you've called that book The Accidental Footballer. That's rubbish. You would always love football. And I'm like, that's my wee sister I'm going to explain it to. And uh, the proof is in. No, I've turned out Chelsea for a year. So that's, that's proof, isn't it? <laughs> You're not desperate to be a footballer. Do you think that, because obviously it was it was because you were enjoying your studies so much, not not just the studying, but obviously the lifestyle around that and meeting kind of like-minded people. Do you think if it hadn't have been Chelsea that you would have turned down, say if it was Ipswich, I'm just thinking about the, the appeal of the London lifestyle as much as the appeal of playing for Chelsea might have been what drew you in and eventually made you say yes. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I'm not going to retrofit it. I'll tell you the exact truth. It was just logic. And I'd, I'd love it to be something better than that. I would love it to be heart and soul. My first strip I ever wore was a Chelsea strip. Mm. And of course, Ipswich would have felt perfect for me because every team I played for in England wore blue and white, much to my father's chagrin. <laughs> as it as um, but no, I think what happened is I played in the Euro Championships uh, under 18s and I'd We'd won it as Scotland and I'd get played a tournament and you know, beating teams with like 
the Dutch with Van Basten, whatever happened to him, no idea. <laughs> um, and then it was Mexico City the next year for the World Youth Championships. And I just wanted to go because one of my other utter loves was travel. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I get to go to Mexico, play in the Azteca, and they're paying me, and it's for Scotland. And I'm thinking, I want to do that. But of course, I'll miss all my exams at the end of the second year of the degree. And I just, I just logic it out, as you do. You know, it's like that movie, The Martian. Think it, you know, just figure it. So I figured it out, which was set all the, the exams on reset in the August um, Go over to Mexico, go back to Chelsea and say, and this time say, all right, I'll come. I'll sign it two years. Ask the, the authorities if I can have a two-year sabbatical. And then I've got the best of both worlds. I can go and hang about in London for a couple of years. Um, it would be nice down there. I could play a bit of football, pay me a few quid. It wasn't a lot. Had that been Ipswich saying that, I may have done the same thing, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, okay, it was Ipswich. But, you know, I, I knew, oddly enough, I knew the area. Uh, I knew most of very well. Um, I cut family, as you say, Terry and all that sort of stuff. I had a new family down there. So it was okay and it's a beautiful place. So I've never thought about it before, Ben. Um, uh, that's a brilliant question. The answer is, yeah, I probably would have liked it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. What I was really interested in from, from your time at Chelsea was, was your relationship with John Neal because he's not somebody who I knew that much about, but but he's another person who comes across as, as a really important figure in your career and somebody who kind of got you. It's interesting. I've tried to explain to people what he was and it's um, personality-wise, he just listened to people. He was an intelligent man and, and understood that it was not just one way to manage. Good managers, and this isn't football, this is just management in the widest sense. They just get the best out of individuals. And that doesn't always take the same methods. And John listened and tried to learn. And I think I was one of his unusual ones. And he, okay, yeah, I will admit I was his pet as well. I was in many ways one of his favourites because he hadn't, remember, he said a lot of things to me. And I, I don't even know if I said this in the book, but he remember he said, I've had skillful players like you, you've got real skills, but not many of your ethic. And, and I mean ethics as in work ethic, but also ethics. And he said, I love that. Because he was a Northern man who had, you know, a community-driven and based man as well. So we had a lot in common. We come from a, the same sort of working class roots, all that sort of stuff. Well, you know, class isn't a big thing for me. Um, and I would say to people, oddly, as it's jumping in my mind now, and I'm, I'm trying to think if this makes sense. The closest I've known him was Carlo Ancelotti. Really quite Carlo, um, because 
you know, that perfect sense, uncle, but don't get in the wrong side of him, but wisdom. I would say to any youngsters who don't know him, Carlo, if Carlo Ancelotti actually came from, you know, Teesside instead of the North Italy, he would kind of wee bit like John Neal and brilliant knowledge of the game as well and good knowledge of people. And so John was fabulous. And he had a great partnership with Ian McNeil, who was his assistant. They did such, they did one thing, they had an eye for a player. I know this is sound stupid because everyone talks about tactics and, and, it's, and it's, they're big and they're important, but really just see what a player can do and what we might be able to do soon. They were very special. A lovely man. And there's some lovely stories in the book about John. There's other stories to come about John, which are really poignant. Um, but certainly the day when I was walking out to Godfrey Warmer at Stamford Bridge, and I thought, oh, I forgot to tell the gaffer I'm in the Scotland under 21. So I knocked the door and looked in. And he was sitting there with Amy Neil, my dad. <laughs> what are you doing, dad? <laughs> sitting with a manager before the game? What? I was like, and he'd been doing it every other week for months and not telling us they get so he got me because he got me but he was being fed information and I wasn't being told a magnificent effort from your dad to come down from Glasgow uh, for every game and, and you'd do a little trick for him because you wouldn't get a chance to to catch up with him and that, that kind of Chelsea team had some brilliant players in it the likes of David Speedy Kerry Dixon not people who you would naturally bomb with outside of football just, just playing football with somebody and, and being on a wavelength like you were with Kerry, does that give you a kind of almost an unspoken bond that, all right, we don't have much in common outside of the pitch. You know, we, we probably wouldn't wouldn't go out and enjoy a night out together. And, and indeed, you, you didn't do much of that. But you've got that almost telepathy that bonds you together in a way that you can't have with people in other walks of life, I suppose. There is something like that. I mean, I didn't spend my time trying to find bonds. My friends were elsewhere. I'm going perfectly well. I would, I would call Pates and Bumpstead and all that. And Jasper, who's no longer with us, I mean, they were friends, you know, and Clarkie became a friend uh, when he came. And But, you know, they're colleagues that you like and got on well with, but you don't have that great deal in common with. You're absolutely right. Um, but I was kind of, I just thought that was natural and normal. But those moments, and there's a picture, I don't know which copy of the book we sent you. Um, has it got the pictures in it? I'm not sure. Yes, it has, yeah. There's one of me holding Kerry, and it honestly, it looks as if I'm going, oh, you're great, you. <laughs> <laughs> and I deliberately put that in one. You'll probably notice most of the pictures are there to take the mickey out of me, right? <laughs> I love the stupid one, right? Um, because I was seen as very sensible and austere and earnest and Mr. You know, oh, he's so intelligent. And I'm thinking, no, actually, I'm a bit daft. But I, I couldn't get it through. So within the book, I think you get more of what my true personality is. Which is taking a long, long time to get it out there, um, but I love putting that in. But there is something in that of there's no many human beings in the world I'd hold like that and go, "Oh, well done, big man." Mm. You know, there is. So when it that picture, a picture was put in every one of those pictures in the book. Um, there's not many. There's a reason. There's a deep reason for it, and that was me saying, "Look, it's actually very noticeable." There's a picture of a speedo in it as well. We're not holding each other. <laughs> <laughs> and although we probably did at various points after scoring a goal, but uh, but yeah, there are certain lovely bonds that, that really, you know, it's lovely to, you don't talk about it afterwards, oddly. You don't talk about it at the time. 
we meet Karen, the most, the most of say is, oh, Pat made me loads of, loads of goals, you know. Oh, tremendous. You know, I can't really do a very good Kerry Dixon. Oh, <laughs> tremendous. Yeah, anyway, so there is that kind of feeling of a bond there. But I have to be honest with you, things change so quickly. You think about that group of players, but by three years later, half of them are gone. There's a new bunch in. And you have a 19-year career. You've played with hundreds. And some will become friends, some will become bonded, some you'll never meet again. Do you know one of the joys of writing this book? And can I tell you first, because it's really been really moving for me. Um, you, lose, you lose track and touch with a lot of people. And one of the best ones, right at the start, just to zip back to Clyde for a second. The reason why Craig Brown brought me back into the game is because I played this bounce game against Clyde. It was me and my mate Brian who decided to see how many people we could dribble past and score as a bet. And whoever did the most, because we didn't know we were playing against the Clyde first team. That guy's Brian Sweeney. Didn't hear from from 30 days, for 30 years, until yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and Brian, and it's not a kind of, he would mean, if we kept in touch, we'd be probably best pal still, best friends. Because we had so much in common. We were in music, we loved playing football. We were very, very similar. But it, that friendship, he came down to Chelsea a few times and that, but it just, for whatever reasons, didn't have mobile phones, lost each other's numbers and we never spoke. So you, friends are like that in life. But for me, because you were so close to somebody once, it doesn't mean if, because you don't see them for 20 or 30 years, it's any different. I will, I will drop into the same conversation and I seriously hope they do too. And somebody else you kind of always going to be linked with, I think, from your time at Chelsea is Paul Cannaville. And this came after the game against Palace where you scored the winning goal, but that wasn't what you wanted to talk about to the uh, to the assembled press afterwards. And, and it was because Paul had been racially abused, not just by Palace fans, but by Chelsea supporters as well. And that, that had, it takes a lot to anger you, but, but that had, that had really, really infuriated you. And you felt you had to say something and not out of a sense of worthiness, but it again goes back to, to how you were raised and, and the stuff you were doing when you were a student, anti-apartheid marches, uh, always any kind of form of discrimination has really bothered you and, and you felt you had to say something about it. Yeah, that earnest part of me has not gone away <laughs> at all. It's not moved, it's not budged. Um, no, it drove me nuts. Uh, I just couldn't get it. I mean, anybody younger, you know, 10, 15 years younger than me, will, go, will, will almost furrow their brow and go, well, obviously you think that way. Well, no, no, not everyone did, you know, and nobody spoke out. And I'm standing in the middle of this, and I, I don't mean football game, I mean the entirety of the game of football, thinking, what the hell? You, Why are you people not talking about this? Why is this not mean? And of course they thought I was a, you know, hard political person making, no, this is just normalcy. You should absolutely be saying people should be able to be do their own job and live their own life without bigotry and without racism, without hatred and without all that bile. And you can tell, you can hear it in my voice now, you can't yell, I'm, I'm, I'm getting on the pulpit again. But, and I just could not get that everyone didn't see it how I see it. And there's a, lot, a couple of lines in the book about, I was nicknamed weirdo. And I used to say, no, no, honestly, guys, I'm the normal one. You're all weird. And of course, you try and say that in any group. And it sounds silly if you're the one that's saying it, everybody else. But I just couldn't get it. And a lot, of, I'm not saying that the players are 
the opposition or even some of the fans were racist. It was just casual use of that sort of language was around all the time. And I just didn't think it was acceptable. But that was particularly it just got me. Um, and I, I tell that story and I have done many times. I have to be honest with yourself. I would rather tell you the full story, which is much bigger than that, which is, yes, it went back to my days as a student and before it and my parents, how they told us how to live. You know, we didn't do sectarianism. But it also is that one game at Crystal Palace, that kind of crystallised it, right? I've been talking about it before that. I've been doing interviews with NME and various people about that. It just didn't hit because I was playing for the first team. I was scoring the winning goal. It was, you know, a top league game. It was, you know, that that was a team to hit. Now, in reality, it didn't get as big a press coverage as as, as you would anyone would get now. Like Marcus or Rahim or anybody would now. It would get huge back. It got a wee banner headline the inside pages, you know, because the sports journals, and I've talked to some of them since, they didn't see it either. They, they went, well, we didn't see it as a problem. It's just society. And I was like, well, we need to change society. And they're like, yeah, that's quite a big hope, mate. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but we need to try. So, yeah, it was a big part of who it was. And it was lovely because it had an effect, you know. And it, Chelsea, there was a delicacy in it because I was having a ticket, Moan fans particularly, I couldn't believe they were doing it because I knew Chelsea fans and I knew the largest percentage weren't like that, right? So I knew it was a small number. But they were going to have to take a bit of a hit in this because if you went to Manchester United or you went to Liverpool or you went anywhere, there were racist fans singing racist songs there. They were everywhere. But it was up to me to say, this is just not right. Now, had I been a Liverpool player, I'd have said the same. Had I been an Everton player first, I'd have said the same. And it's a little bit of a shame that people might read it now and think, oh, Chelsea was a terrible club back. No, no, that was the norm for all the clubs. And that's what upset me. And I felt that we should be in the vanguard of chasing it and fighting it and doing the right things. And as time went by, we, that, we became that, I think. I think Chelsea, we, you know, it's like, I, I, should, I don't know if I should say that, but I do. I always say we when I say Chelsea. Mm-hmm. I've not played for the club for God in decades, but it's my team, right? It's my, my club, my love. But I, we needed to get beyond that. Um, and it took it took a long time. It took a while. The the thing that people, I, I remember having a chat with, would you believe I'm, I'm the strangest people? I met Michael Gove two nights ago. <laughs> Michael Gove, outside the Champions League final with his son. I met Michael Pertillo a, 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 two years ago. And I'm immediately in talking about, this is what happens with football. This is what you have to understand. This is why you're doing this right or wrong. I got into that kind of mode when I talk to them generally. They're very nice to me, etc. when I talk to them. Um, I remember saying to Michael Patillo, you, you really don't get it, you people in government. You have to understand the massive importance of of football culturally. It's, and I'm, I'm known as someone who's into a culture, but I also knew the importance of football in our culture. And I tried to explain to them it's not a bunch of jobs. This is, this is a massive part of our culture. You hear the yobs because they are loud. And there might be 10 of them, and you'll hear them over 400 who aren't. So you'll think all oh, those 410 people are, are hooligans or racists or whatever. That's not who they are. That's not what they are. And see, and any football fan knows that, don't you? You know, every football, I've talked to football fans, you know that these people, A, get your bad name, but B, you're tarred by that brush. 
And she's trying to get that across to people. But I knew we had to take a hit. And there was no real race. There was no racism with the manager, obviously, of that. But it was an interesting thing. It was a, I, I had to write about that quite seriously. And I had to take my time and do that right. Because I wasn't going to sweep in anything under the carpet. But I also wanted to be fair to people and say the ones that wouldn't speak out, why they didn't. And certainly why the club at the time was a wee bit reticent, a wee bit slow to react. I know why. It's because you would have been the first. And can I underline one other thing? People always say, you're so brave, Pat. No, I wasn't. I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> I just, I was out. I tried to stop myself. I couldn't have. So it was, it's a decent part of the book, but I mean, there's a story in there and I'm interested to talk to you about um, Keithy Jones playing against Rangers when we went up there. And it's the darkest of dark humour because it's actually quite funny, but it also tells you this horrible story of what it was like. Um, and I thought, well, I changed that. Well, I no, no, I'll tell you what, I'll write it how it happened. And there's a bit right at the start of the book where I say to you, and I write to you with absolute honesty, I will not treat you like an idiot during this book. I will talk to you. I will write to what I feel. I won't blow smoke anywhere I shouldn't. And if you don't agree with my views, you don't. But I certainly won't be one to manipulate This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, so you end up leaving Chelsea at the end of the 87-88 season after they were, were relegated, a kind of bizarre relegation. You're a two-time Chelsea player of the year, but but that you didn't fit into the style that, that they had at the time. But you're still, yeah. as you've already mentioned, yeah, your your love for the club still endures. And a lot of that, well, not a lot of it, well, certainly part of it was born out of the fact that you go back with Everton, score against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge, and you get a great reaction. And that... and. And you can say, oh, that's because Pat used to play for us and he was good. But because of what you've just spoken about and speaking out against the club supporters or a section of them, it would have been very easy for everybody to say, oh, well, Pat's against us. He's not one of us anymore. But but you were embraced by Chelsea support. I think, and I think to this day, that when I said that, the vast majority of Chelsea fans went, get in there, Pat. Yes, thank you. You know, so the, I was saying, there is a group of Chelsea supporters and they do that. Of course, the, the papers will use their lines and it's not my lines, but uh, true Chelsea fans knew. They got it. And to this day, and I still get it, and it was a, I love, I mean, absolutely brilliant moment. I, I get it quite often um, when I'm going, particularly in London, and I, I'll be on a tube or I'll, you know, walking along and somebody, always a black guy will look at me or an Asian guy and they'll look at me and they'll just nod. 
and it's it's, it's so moving because I know what it means. It means yeah, thanks, mate. And it's doesn't it? And it's always cool. It happened recently. Um, it was down in London last time with my wife, and I peeped a horn in a white van, and I looked over, and I got the nod, that nod. And there was this guy, this black guy, was the coolest guy in the world. You know, he just he just gave us a real nod, and I worked on. And my wife said, "What was that? What was going on there?" And I went, "It's the secret little club that we have." <laughs> and it was honestly, I te- I do tear up when it happens. It's, and I'm not that type of emotional guy. And um, so there was the people who were allowed to be outsiders, which brings us back to the whole book, doesn't it? Really, I you were. Made to look like an outsider if you were black or if you were very liberal or whatever at Chelsea supporters at the time, but you weren't. We were a cross section, again, Chelsea fans, we we were a cross section of the whole society. Chelsea fans weren't what they were portrayed as. So maybe I wasn't shocked that they they welcomed me back and the reaction was really good. I mean, scoring against them in the shed, honestly. <laughs> torture. And it was one of those classic ones. We were talking just now a couple of days after the Champions League. My goal against them was exactly the same as Kai Havertz in the final. It was exactly the same. I had enough time. I went around Besson to think, I could miss this if I want. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know Kai had that time, didn't he? It was a real pause of, ah. now it's not as big a deal. Trust me. <laughs> I know that. And Chelsea actually beat us 2-1 that day when I was at Everton. But it was a real, for me, it was a, a massive moment, you know, because I, I kind of, there were a variety of things. And any Chelsea fans who read the book, they'll know. They knew anyway, but they'll know why, you know, that it was always had to be Chelsea and it was always going to be Chelsea. It was a, a magical. And anyway, magical, honestly. There are moments that stick with me and they, they don't have to be about yourself. You know, the moment Torres goes away against Barcelona, Kai Havertz, it, that... By the way, when Kai Havertz goes around Edison, how long did that take? Amazing. Um, so, anyway, so it's and it's just great because you look at it where we've come after all these years. I never planned for this book to come out the week that <laughs> Chelsea won the <laughs> Somebody said to me, um, somebody said to me, have you had a good week? And I went, uh, well, apart from going to the Champions League final. Getting the best seat in the house, getting paid for it, <laughs> Chelsea winning it. By the way, I've got, I'll show you, Mike, you can see this now. There's the program, I've got the program with me. I write in the program. <laughs> and uh, my book came out, and then I came home and I opened the, the paper, and it's in the top 10 bestsellers list. I'm like, oh, of the hardbacks released this week. And I went, yeah, it's not a bad week. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> it's a purely personal level, honestly. You, you can't, it's, I've had one of those weeks. And, and, I, and, I, and by the way, that's before I even I went to the party, the players' party afterwards, and you're sitting by the cup. And it was honestly, I, you will look back in your life. Um, how many days or weekends will you actually remember that weekend? You know, 30 years on. I've just had one of those weekends and so has every other Chelsea fan. And it's uh, it's fantastic for us. It's fantastic for the club. And it's, I mean, this has just been a great chance having the book now. Again, underline, pure fluke. <laughs> it just happened to come out. How did I know we were going to win the Champions League? I mean, really, 
but it's come out and having the opportunity now to share it with the Chelsea fans all that time and, and say to them, look, this is what it felt like. This is how I felt about you. This is how I feel about the club. Here's the weird things that happened. <laughs> I just love, I love the fact that it's all came together now. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And and I, I would have loved to have been in Porto, obviously, but but I was in West London and coming out of Stamford Bridge on Saturday night and seeing that release of emotion, obviously at winning the Champions League, but I think a lot about people just getting to be together and enjoy celebrating something was um, was pretty magnificent. Um, I, w- I want to talk about what happened post-Chelsea and you moved to Everton, but just briefly on, on Scotland and your Scotland career, you, you mentioned the under-18 European Championship win in 82 feels to me like that was almost the, the peak of your Scotland career, maybe, because there's a lot of kind of a day late and a dollar short in, in you know, missing out on 86 when Fergie didn't pick you. And then again in 1990, and, and then we get to your 92 and you're kind of limited by an injury that you suffered in a friendly. And it was almost nearly, but not quite. Yes, if you look upon it that way, but I don't. <laughs> my attitude is very much, what, you're letting me play for my country? <laughs> yeah. I scored five goals. I've made is probably double that. Um, I mean, st- st- statisticians these days can just twist anything. I had 15 starts and scored five goals. Come on, that's all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you add assists onto that, the numbers were good. In those days, it was actually hard to get uh, a lot of caps because there weren't as many games. It's much, much easier these days. Um, I'll be honest with you, Scotland had a good team. <laughs> That guy, Douglas, was all right. He wasn't bad, you know, and other players. Um, just when it was my time, really coming in, because it was Gordon Strachan was ahead of me and Cooper, David Cooper, but really super players and a lot of good strikers and midfielders. And then it was just coming on to my time. And uh, Scotland dropped wingers. They started playing 5-3-2. And no wide players except for wingbacks, fullbacks, really just fullbacks. So the only time I'm going to get a game then is come on a sub and with the kind of the, the door open or the locksmith. Um, I, don't, I, I just, it's, it's a classic line. It's not what your country can do for you, it's what you can do for your country. One cap would have been fine. 28 was really good. I'll be honest with you, and I, I, I say this to a lot of people, it's, I have that different attitude of, I didn't go to Italian 90. I thought I probably should have. I was playing well enough then and I was playing Everton. I was at the top of the game and all that sort of stuff. But if I'd have been sitting on the bench, I'd rather give that to somebody else. I'm not interested in that. I want to play. And, I've, and if I go there and I, I even get 10 minutes at a World Cup, for some people that's wow. If it's me, I'm thinking, if I don't have an impact or I don't enjoy it and I have to spend six weeks or eight weeks away from my family for no real apparent reason, I'm not going to cry about it. I got upset about it. So it shocks a lot of people for my love of football that it had absolutely no negative effect. None at all. And I'm not hiding it. I'll tell you if it did. There's lots of things that did upset me, but that didn't. So the Scotland career, brilliant. 28 goals. And uh, if you get a chance to win against Estonia, that wasn't bad. Well, there'll be people listening who won't remember you as a player. David Silver's a name that comes up a few times in the book. Eddie Hazard too. And I heard you recently, an even kind of more modern reference point or a more recent one, Eberiche Eze. What is it about him and him and you that you think are kind of kindred in a footballing sense? Well, there's certain things I've seen certain players through the years. I'm not saying that you're as good as them, but you understand the thinking processes. And, and Eden had a particular thing where 
you know, the first a player's coming to tackle him, but he knows he's beaten them. He's not reached them yet, but he knows he's beaten them. He's already trying to manipulate his body in a certain way to put the next guy uh, out of um, his comfort zone or certainly off balance. Um, and Edin was brilliant at that. But I could see before he beat the first guy what he was ready to do with the second because they'd done all that stuff. So there's a kindred feeling of, yeah, I get that. Um, you know, but he did it brilliantly more often at world-class level and all the rest of it. So I'm not saying I'm as good as him. Um, certainly, Eze does exactly the same. Uh, exactly the same. Uh, but he has to add other things to his game. It's a shame he's got a really bad injury now, which we find out if he comes back is good. But he's the best and certainly in, the, in England at taking round players like that, without a doubt. You know, and that, people will say, whoa, what about so-and-so and so-and-so? And I'm talking a very specific skill. And Eze is unbelievable. And I've talked to well, I was talking to Aiden and the other day, and I said, "What do you, you you know about him?" He goes, "Nobody like him. He's unbelievable." You know, and, he, and pros don't say that about other pros unless they know and they've seen it. And he says, "He's unbelievable." So I'm not, I'm not getting that one wrong happily because I'm only watching now. But people who have played alongside him just say, "Wow." Um, the silver one's more so. He's he's the player since I retired that I've most related to. Um, he was definitely the style that I would try to play, the, the way I played, the way I wanted to play, um, because I was always stuck in the wing. But as you'll find from reading the book, I'd never really played in the wing <laughs> before I came to Chelsea. <laughs> it was a bit of a shock to me. <laughs> I didn't like it, uh, but you have to learn. Um, but if you look at the modern player now, you know, David Silva, what he did for all that time, the intelligence, the you know the, the assists to the assist, all that sort of stuff, knowing what you're doing. Um, that was exactly it. And to me, that's exactly how I tried to play. And, you know, almost exactly the same height, centre of gravity. I was quite quick, but not lightning. You know, Davis was the same. There's so much about him that I just thought that was it. He's the closest I've ever found to the way I was trying to do it. There's so much in the book that, that we haven't touched on, but but time is against us. I, I want to talk briefly about Everton, though. And, and in typical Pat fashion, part of the reason that you ended up signing there uh, was because of a particularly impressive mixtape put together by manager yeah. Colin Harvey's daughter. Mel, who's still in touch with me, she's tweeted me the other day. And when I DJ, sometimes Mel comes as well. Um, yeah, I just, I just got, I, I agreed to go because I was just about to sign for PSG. I went to the state Chelsea, but they couldn't, struggle, wouldn't keep me. So uh, I think they needed the money, but also they were changing direction. And it was, it was suited us both in the end. Uh, it broke my heart. Um, but I went to Everton. Uh, it's a long story, which I'll let readers read. But to get to the final, I jump in Colin Harvey's car at Manchester Airport. And he's there with Terry Darricott. And uh, the radio starts playing. It's an absolute cracker of a song comes on. I thought, like, oh, music's good up here. Anyway, before songs end, I'm thinking, nah, something's fishy here. You, you don't hear the Cocteau Twins, like, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> uh, what's going on here? And of course, it was Colin Harvey's daughter had gone and made a mix it of stuff that she knew I liked. And he just put it on in the background to make me feel good. And I thought, uh, I kind of like that. That's just a cool thing to do. I'd actually met Colin for three or four minutes and I thought, you had me at high, you know. Brilliant man, lovely man, honest. I look for honesty first. See money and all that stuff. They had like four, fifth, six. I'm looking for a good pitch, good players, <laughs> a chance to enjoy the game, a good crowd. Uh, they're all my tick list at the top. So 
Uh, but Mel did that, and that certainly helped. And I went straight to Colin's house, and I met Colin's wife and his three daughters, one sadly no longer with us. And uh, I just thought, I love Colin, but I actually think they're even nicer. <laughs> so I kind of uh, gravitate towards good people. Um, the, the other sides of it are also a wee bit secondary. And I think when we are taking our last gasps in this earth, we won't look back at how much is in your bank account or anything like that. You think of the good people. And uh, he was one of them. And they were. And a lot of the people that are in this book that you read, it's them people. And uh, there's good stories about them, I think. Yeah, there's some fabulous ones. I mean, I feel a, a, there's a sort of comparison maybe to make with your time at Everton and your time at Scotland in that, you know, you lost those finals in, in 89, obviously the FA Cup final when when the trophy that year wasn't the big thing and, and the Simod Cup final too. And and you got the, the injury shortly after you arrived and then Howard Kendall comes in and, and you're very much oil and water, you two as characters. But but there's no sense of bitterness or regret at that. It, it's more what comes across in the book as, hey, I got to play for Everton Football Club, the People's Football Club. I had a great time. Uh, yeah, hopefully a little bit more uh, beautifully put than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you're absolutely right. I, I, just grow, grow, growing up and brought up with the attitude of there's a lot of victimisation and self-victimisation around the world at the moment. And people who have got fabulous things in their life telling you how terrible their life they've got. And that's fine if that's the way you feel. You know, where, where I come from, you can have a really tough start and really hard things happen. And I'm thinking, can I really complain when the guy around the corner for me, you know, lost his brother a few years ago, somebody's lost somebody else, or you have some sort of disability or that. And I'm going, oh, terrible me. No, I'm trying to make the best out of it. You know, there's only one life here, you know. None of us are getting out of this alive, as someone recently said to me, which I loved. So... You, you've got a choice a lot of the time to take situations either positively or negatively. You, you do, not always because there's mental health problems and all that and difficulties and we all have bad times. But you can make a choice and you can try to be as happy as you possibly can. Um, and the sadness is the second book shows that much more difficult times and stuff that people don't know about uh, like Annabelle and I's lives are hard. And you have to do that, and and you you will. But it didn't stop my voice being as positive about every situation I'm in that, that I have been. Um, so I'm afraid it is. Yeah, I've got to play forever. It's great. It's brilliant. I'd like it to be better. But it's, you know, it's like somebody saying, "Oh, I'm a multi-millionaire, but I wish I was a billionaire." You'd say, "Shut up!" Right. <laughs> so that that's kind of my angle it's not complex but it's 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 kind of helped me it's helped me as well to be perfectly honest when when you and I first started commentating together in 2011 12 I used to get incredibly anxious before the games and, and really stress about it and your attitude towards it just really brought me back down because it, there's a real sense of perspective about it. And I remember one time we did a Europa League game and, and the referee was not having a good game and making a show of himself and you said 
this is not about you, mate. This is about the 22 people on the field. And I, for some reason, I was able to just put that into, into my head and say, oh, actually, what I'm doing is not particularly important here. We should just enjoy watching this game and talking about it because it's the greatest thing in, in the world. Um, Pat, there's so much that we haven't touched upon. Uh, brilliant stories about playing friendlies in Baghdad. Uh, Galatasaray <laughs> kind of coercively trying to force you to sign for the before you end up going to Tranmere. And there's going to be so much more to come in, in parts two, and I'm guessing part three mm. as well, because you, you've got an incredible story to tell. Uh, the Accidental Footballer, it's, it's available now. It's a real passion project, clearly. I raced through it in, in a couple of days. I know it was a long time that, that you wrote it now, but but now you've had some time to look back on it. it there must be a big sense of pride that, that you've been able to get it done, that it's been so well received, and, and that you've been able to tell your story in the way that you wanted to. Do you know what? It's very, very weird. It's a slight dichotomy for me. I can't publicise myself. I can't say, hey, look at me, look at what I do. It's so against my home, who I am as a person. But when you've got a book out, you want people to read it. And there are very few things in my entire life, and I mean playing football and everything, I can say, I actually am really pleased with that. I've written every word. I've, I'm happy with the way it looks and sounds. There are very few things I would change about it. Um, if you don't like it, I'm, you know, you don't like it. But I do, I am actually really pleased with it. And that's a slight embarrassment for me to say it. But I do think it's okay. And the reaction has been lovely. It's been absolutely fantastic. And I have one thing about it. I really want anyone who reads it to have enjoyed it. And so far, absolutely so good. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really happy about it. And uh, I, I, I love writing. So uh, you're right, it ain't going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I can't wait to read part two. This, I mean, we haven't even got to director of football stage and, and everything else. All, you, all your work that you've done with the PFA is, is covered in book one. That's fascinating too. Uh, but it's a great read. The Accidental Footballer, available from actual bookshops and anywhere else that you can pick up books now. And Pat, thanks so much for your time today and, and best of luck with it. Look forward to speaking to you again about part two. I will speak to you as soon as I can. <laughs> thanks everyone for listening. The Athletic.